Let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, if you were with us last week, then you know that we have just kicked off a new study, a series titled Rock Solid Truth. We're studying our way through the amazing gospel of Luke, and and I didn't give much introduction to the author and, and much introduction to this book last week since our focus was where? On Mother's, Mother's Day, but so here are a few uh, foundational points of interest, and I'll share more as we continue through the book. But first off, know that Luke does not identify himself as the author of this book. And even though he doesn't, there is very little disagreement over the fact that he is both the author here and the author of what other book in the New Testament? Acts. What's unique about Luke is that he is the only Gentile, the only non-Jew to author any scripture. It's no wonder that one of the themes of Luke's gospel is that Christ's salvation is for everyone, not just the Jews. And no wonder he spent time with Paul, the Apostle Paul, in in Paul's ministry to the Gentile peoples and the Gentile nations, the non-Jews. It makes sense why this gospel has been nicknamed the missionary gospel. How many of you have heard that before? Yeah, just, just a, a few, a few. It was, it was new to me as well. Taking the gospel to the rest of the world. And speaking of Paul, the Believer's Bible Commentary notes that Luke and Acts combine more writing than all of Paul's epistles. Luke is no insignificant contributor to the writings of the New Testament. History records that Luke was a physician. Paul acknowledges this as well. What did he call Luke. Luke, the beloved physician. So you'll see Luke's compassion and his attention to detail come through in his writing. As to the recipient, Theophilus, mentioned at the start here uh, in chapter 1, we know very little of this man other than he was a man of nobility or rank. This is evidenced by Luke addressing him as most excellent Theophilus in verse 4. That was a common title given to prominent persons. Now, the last thing I'll note today before diving into our text is is that Luke was not an eyewitness to the life of Christ. He is not one of the 12 disciples. He's not one of the apostles. He is rightly recognized by William MacDonald as the first church historian. Indeed, as a companion of the apostle Paul on so much of his missionary journeys, And seeing how committed Luke was to know and communicate the truth, he was in a position to provide us not only with the most unique perspective amongst the four Gospels, he was also a perfect fit to record the growth of the church in Acts, the growth of the church well beyond the Jews. And what an an awesome record of history provided to us in that fascinating book. We did a short study in Acts in the first four chapters uh, during our time at Harborview Fellowship. How, how many of you were here uh, with us when we met at Harborview Fellowship? Just a couple years back now. Um, by the way, I, I haven't even mentioned this. I didn't even mention this in the first service. I mean, God just has us so busy in the work of the Lord. We're just, we're just things are flying. You understand this. I mean, do you recognize today's the first anniversary in the building? It was May, May 16th that we had our grand opening and dedication last year. Praise the Lord. But this reminds me that time is flying. 
There is work to be done, and there is only so much time to do it. Praise the Lord for what he's doing. But uh, that, that study through Acts, uh, the first four chapters, really whet my appetite for more in that book. And I'm sure we will go there again before too long. But meanwhile, I trust that every single one of us will walk away from this month, months-long study through the Gospel of Luke with not only a deep respect and appreciation for this gem in the New Testament, but all the more with a deeper respect and appreciation for the life of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who lived and died and lives again for us, for His glory. The title for our study this morning is Nothing is Impossible with God. You know it's going to be a good day when that's the theme of the thinking for the day. My God can do anything. Isn't that right at the foundation of why we are even Christians? Why we worship and follow and believe in the God of the Bible? Nothing is impossible with God. That changes the way we view challenges. It changes the way we view the future. It changes the way we view ourselves and God and everything he has called us to. As noted last week, throughout this entire study series, I'm going to be asking you and me this question. How certain are you of God's word? How certain are you? Now, just for the record, I am not suggesting you go out there for selfies. But if God puts you there in life, you want to know that he is going to hold you up. Luke penned this entire letter with one main objective in mind. We saw it in verse 4 last week. That you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. This begs the question, how certain are you and I of, what God, of, of God's word? Now there's a parallel question that we'll find in our text for today. It's this, how certain are you of God's power? Can God really do anything? And if he can... Am I living like it? Can we take this line of thinking one level deeper? If God can really do anything, do I believe that he always does what is best in my life for his glory? Again, if we, if we believe that God can really do anything, do we also then believe that he is doing what is best in our life for his glory. This is where faith gets very, very personal. Oh, that we will be able to look at and face any trial or unexpected hardship, any calling that God has on our life and be able to say, God is able and God is good. Therefore, I can trust and follow him. Psalm 84, verses 11 to 12 says, The Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord gives grace and glory. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, how blessed is the man who trusts in you. May God bless us as we trust in him for his glory. Let's pray and then we'll study our text for today. Heavenly Father, thank you for being the God of the impossible, the God who is not just powerful, but who has all power, all authority, 
And Lord, you don't just state these things. You don't just claim them. You have proven them through the thousands and thousands of years of world history. You have demonstrated yourself to be all-powerful. Lord, help us to be a people who do not just know this truth, but who live according to it, who rest in it, who march forward in it. Lord, we want to be quick to humble ourselves before you and acknowledge that we do not know it all. We do not have the strength in and of ourselves that we need to live righteously and blamelessly before you as we studied last week. But you are the God who enables because you are able and you are good. So Lord, help us to walk away from this place trusting in you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, if we were to outline today's text, we could divide it into three sections the setting, the characters, and the conversation. We'll be in verses 26 through 38 this morning. We've got a lot to fill in over the next half hour or so, so let's jump right into the first main point, the setting. Beginning in verse 26, it says, Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph, of the descendants of David, And the virgin's name was Mary. Very briefly, observe how much detail is communicated in the setting. These are all the ingredients for a fantastic story. Now, of course, this isn't just a story. It is history. It is a record of history. And the ingredients in this setting include an angel, an angelic appearance, a lowly city, an engagement, a virgin woman, and a man of Davidic lineage, someone of the ancestry of King David, the man after God's own heart. Now, the region of Galilee, where this takes place, is some 45 miles north of Jerusalem. It's about 40 miles long, 30 miles wide, and it is in Galilee that we find the, the small city of Nazareth. Now, the ESV Study Bible, which some of you, I don't doubt, are holding right now, notes that this town has been found and excavated, and it appears to be a lowly agricultural settlement that may have been unknown to a number of the readers of Luke's writing here. Thus, his explanation of where this little town even was. It's worth noting that even the place of Jesus' birth, his mother, his father, where they lived, speaks to his divine humility Regarding the engagement, Darabach says this in his commentary. This engagement refers to the first stage of a two-stage Jewish marriage process. The initial stage of engagement, or betrothal, involves a formal witnessed agreement to, to marry and a financial exchange of a bride price. At this point, the woman legally belongs to the groom and is referred to as his wife. About a year later, the marriage ceremony takes place when the husband takes his wife home. Joseph and Mary are somewhere in the middle of this engagement period. And of course, the miraculous nature of what we're about to read revolves around the fact that Mary is a virgin 
who would, who would soon experience the first and only virgin birth, a miraculous birth involving no earthly father. And of course, if you're familiar with the Davidic covenant, God's covenant to King David in 2 Samuel 7, then you realize that the, that the Davidic lineage here in Joseph is a fulfillment, a mandatory fulfillment of messianic prophecy. 2 Samuel chapter 7, 12 to 16 says, and this is God speaking to David, when your days are finished and you lie down with your fathers, meaning when you die, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build for me a, a house for my name, speaking of the temple, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will, build a, I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. When he does wrong, I will discipline him with a rod of men and with strokes of sons of mankind. But my favor shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. What incredible words. Can you imagine any president of our time or any king of our time hearing those words from God? Your throne, my throne, is never going to end. All of these points in this setting instantly place this situation into a most unique and indeed miraculous category. So next, let's consider, secondly, the characters. We have Gabriel, Joseph, and Mary, all mentioned in verse 26 and 27. And here we have a significant angel and a righteous couple. Regarding the angel, we just saw this angel last week in the first part of this chapter. And how did he introduce himself? He said, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. Wow. This is not an ordinary appearance. And he bears not an ordinary message. Now regarding this couple, the only thing that we note up to this point besides their locale and their ancestry is their physical moral purity. The text says little here about them. But it says so much. Engaged, but still a virgin. This is faith above pleasure. God above self. This is a, a private, a secret righteousness. A righteousness in the sight of God. This has strong parallels to our study last week in the verses 5 to 25 that we looked at. We titled that study, A Righteous Woman. Verse 4 said this of Elizabeth and her husband. They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. What an incredible testimony. And already here in verse 26, we're seeing hints of a similar righteousness and blamelessness before God in the life of Mary and Joseph. Now, I need to make a, a quick correction to something I stated last week. Last week, in talking about Zacharias and this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity he had to go into the temple alone and offer incense to God, I stated that he went alone while all the other priests and the people waited outside. He went alone into the most holy place. 
also known as the Holy of Holies. Now, how many of you know that Zacharias did not go into the Holy of Holies? Raise your hand. Higher? Church family, that was a test. No, not really. I, I just, I, I slipped up. And I realized that as I was continuing my studies, I said, like, wait a minute, where, where did he go? He went into the holy place and came up to the veil that separated the most holy place. And it was in front of that veil that he alone offered incense to God in worship. What an incredible opportunity. But the point here regarding this couple that we're looking at today and this couple last week is their walk before God. God uses those who humbly and righteously live before him. Second Chronicles 16.9 gives us a most exquisite view into the nature of God when it says, For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. Or as the King James Version says, to show himself strong in the behalf of them whose heart is perfect toward him. Or as the ESV says, those whose heart is blameless toward him. Of all the choices that a person has that, that will define their integrity and their true holiness before God, one of the most revealing is their sexual purity. Friends, one of the greatest lies Satan poses regarding immorality is this, no one will ever know. But in the context of these scriptures we're studying, and indeed all of the scriptures, we cannot help but ask, will God not know? Does God not see? And of course, yes, he does. And it's righteousness in the sight of God that set Elizabeth apart. And here we see a holiness in Mary and Joseph as well, a key attribute to the main characters in this account. Third point for today, which is where we'll spend most of our time this morning, we have the conversation, the conversation. As we walk our way through this very real conversation, I want you to do your best to let your imagination go according to the word of God. Put yourself in Mary's shoes. Try to relive this experience in your mind. Imagine what it have, must have been like to hear the words that we are about to read. And I want you to ask yourself, how would I have responded? Let's see what we can learn from this biblical account. The conversation could be divided into four parts. Part A is Gabriel's message. Read with me in verse 28. It says, and coming in, he said to her, that is to Mary, Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. That's what you call a pregnant pause. Now, of course, we can't blame her. If an angel suddenly appeared to you and said, Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. What would your response be? I mean, I, I can only guess for even for myself, but I would guess that I would just be totally speechless like Mary. I mean, how do you answer that coming from this individual? But consider the two parts to Gabriel's message thus far. 
God favors you and God is with you. God favors you and God is with you. Now as a point of application, may I ask, can the same be said of you? Can God say the same of you and me? If you're a child of God, then yes, absolutely. And if you are striving to live righteously and blamelessly in the sight of God, then yes, again. Are you following me in this? Positionally, we are eternally favored by God. And his spirit does indwell with us according to the promises of Scripture, never to be taken away. But behaviorally, we have the responsibility by God's grace to make daily choices that are righteous, righteous and blameless in God's sight. And that also brings upon a person the favor and the present power of God. Friends, God is highlighting two aspects of divine blessing here that we should pursue. The favor and the presence of God, both now and forevermore. This begins with salvation and it continues with sanctification, spiritual growth. Now I have to pause briefly here to ask life's most important question. Are you a child of God? Do you know that you have the loving, cleansing, forgiving favor of God upon your life? That he has forgiven you of all your sins and promised you eternity in his presence? If not, then I encourage you to believe what the word of God says and accept his free gift of eternal life today. John 3, 16, one of the most well-known scriptures says, for God so loved the world. I mean, we, we have to recognize that this whole thing of salvation begins with God loving you and me so much. It was the love of God that moved him, that drove him to send his own son, Jesus Christ, the son of God, to be the savior of the world to die on the cross for our sins so we could be forgiven when there is no other way to be forgiven. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave, this is the greatest gift ever, is it not? That he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That is why we are here. It's why we worship him. Did you know that Jesus himself said those words? Believe in him and you will not perish but have eternal life. As Graham mentioned earlier, if you would like to know more about what it means to believe in God, to believe in his son, to believe the scriptures, then please speak to me or just about anyone else here. We would love to open the word of God to you, with you, and show you the same scriptures that spoke so powerfully to us, words like nothing else we have ever heard in this world. 
Christian friend, are you living a godly life that is bringing down the favor and presence of God upon you? Are you living in the nearness of God? Not in a salvation way. We, we know that he is always with us. But the Bible also exhorts believers in James, James chapter 4, to draw near to God. And he will draw near to us. Mary was blessed with the favor and the presence of God. We can be too, and we should. Look at verse 30. Gabriel's message continues. It says, The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. We saw these four words last week as they were given to Elizabeth. We saw them a few weeks ago on Easter Sunday in the account of the resurrection. We see them over and over and over again in the Word of God. It is one of God's commands to people who believe in Him to live courageously in the face of evil, in the face of the unknown, in the face of God. We can stand because of Christ. We have no need for fear. The Lord said to his people, Israel, in Isaiah 41, verse 10, Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. That's the heart of God for his people when they seek after him. Jump to the New Testament, 2 Timothy 1.7. For God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. But in all of this, we have to recognize that the power to fear not does not come because we choose not to fear. It comes because God gives us the authority not to fear. He commands it. But as noted last Sunday, there has to be a reason not to be afraid. And the scripture is full of such reasons. It's why we keep going back to the word of God. And the angel Gabriel gave another reason to Mary right here in the next phrase. For you have found favor with God. When the blessing of God is upon you, it begins to wash away all your fears. There is courage and boldness and confidence and freedom in knowing that the blessing of God rests upon you, come what may in this life. There is freedom in knowing that you and I walk in his favor. Again, thus the urgent need for every one of us to be living in the pursuit of holiness, holy living, even as God is holy and even as God has already made us holy in Christ Jesus. Gabriel's message continues in verse 31. He says, and behold... You will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. 
Stop for a second and jump back into imagination mode. Did you hear what the angel just said? (laughs) How would you respond if an angel, Gabriel no less, suddenly showed up and told you that you were going to conceive and your son's name would be Jesus, a great man called the Son of the Most High, and God would give him the throne of David, his father, man after God's own heart, and he would reign on the reign over the house of Jacob forever. Speaking of your son, and his kingdom will have no end. How does a person's brain even begin to absorb such incredible news? Let's look at how Mary responds. Point B, we have Mary's humble question. We find this in verse 34. Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I am a virgin? Now, if you were with us last week, then you know that we talked about questioning God. If you haven't read the rest of this chapter before, then maybe you would be thinking, don't ask that question. Don't ask questions. Look at what happened to the last guy. Zacharias couldn't speak for nine months because he questioned God. But you recall that we observed that it is not the question and the questioning of God that got Zacharias in trouble. It was the fact that he doubted. God. It's one thing to ask a question in doubt. It is another to ask in faith. We looked at this last week. Everything here in the text leads me to believe that Mary asked this question in faith. You'll see why. But let's look at point C first. Here's Gabriel's answer in verse 35. The angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the holy child shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age. And she who is called barren is now in her sixth month, for nothing will be impossible with God. Now, before we look at Mary's response, we have to consider the magnitude of what the angel just said. First, it was the Spirit of God who would come upon Mary and cause her to conceive, not her husband Joseph. It was the power of the Most High that would overshadow her and miraculously bring life into her womb. And because of that, The holy child will be called the Son of God. Can you imagine hearing these mind-blowing words if they were spoken to you? Very quickly, look at point D in our outline, Mary's humble response. Verse 38, and Mary said, Behold the bond slave of the Lord. May it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. If a movie was made of this account that we just read, it would be one of the most fascinating of all time, and it would only be about two minutes long. I mean, if you and I were Mary, surely we'd be sitting there thinking, what in the world just happened? Again, put yourself in Mary's shoes. If the first half of Gabriel's message didn't already blow you away, surely this would have. Your child is going to be the son of God. How would you have responded to that kind of news? I mean, seriously, if an angel appeared to you and said those words, would you A, scream and run the other way, B, pass out, C, stress out, 
D, try to figure it out, or E, reply with, behold the bond slave of the Lord. May it be done to me according to your word. As we wrap up, I want you to ponder the amazing grace and faith in Mary's response. Where she is essentially saying, behold, I am here to serve God. As somebody mentioned when they uh, came up to me after the first service, it's when you put yourself in Mary's shoes that you realize what this was going to mean for her over the next nine months. What would other people think of her? The Jews who suddenly find out over time she's pregnant. The assassination of character comes to mind. And then you tell this story of an angel, and this is actually the Son of God in you? Who would want to walk in Mary's shoes? No wonder J Joseph kept her away privately, protecting his wife, caring for her. My church family, there is something here in the text that will revolutionize your and my life if we can grasp it. When the word of the Lord came to Mary, and remember, this wasn't Gabriel's message. This was God's message through Gabriel to Mary. When God's word came to Mary, she instantly gave two responses, which were essentially, I am your servant, and your will be done in my life. Humility and obedience. Friends, you can't make up that kind of answer. You can't fake that kind of response. Nobody can think that fast in that kind of a situation. That is what was in Mary's heart. Can you fathom an angel of God suddenly appearing to you, giving you this news, news and the next words out of your mouth are, behold the bond, slave, the bond servant of the Lord. May it be done to me according to your word. That answer is how we know Mary asked the prior question in faith. It was this heart attitude of humility and obedience that asked the question. It was this heart attitude that then responded to the message of the Lord. Can you imagine? Friends, you and I don't have to imagine. I have news for you. The greatest most mind-blowing, most wonderful news ever gets spoken to you and me every single time we open the Word of God. The question is, how do we respond? I don't know where this study in Luke finds you in life. I don't know where your daily Bible reading and time with God finds you. I don't know what God is asking of you in life right now, but I do know this. Your and my answer must be, I exist to serve you, Lord. Your will be done in my life. Now, that's a high and lofty spiritual thought. But let's put some spiritual teeth to it and keep it down to earth. What were the last four words Mary said in verse 38? According to your word. My church family, that is the key 
to serving God well and experiencing his will for our lives, we just say yes to his word. Would you agree? Obedience is not complex. I don't know exactly what God's plan is for your life, but I can tell you how to find it. Just say yes, Lord, whenever he speaks. I want to wrap up with this point that takes us even one step deeper. What is it that enables, or at least helps enable, a person to respond to the Word of God with such deep faith and humility and ready obedience? I would propose to you that it's the last words out of the angel's mouth. What was the climax the capstone of the angel's answer to Mary's question, how is this possible? You'll find the pinnacle of the angel's answer in verse 37, for nothing will be impossible with God. Friends, that changes everything. God may not ask you to give birth to his son. Matter of fact, I know he won't. But he is going to ask you and me to surrender daily to him. He's going to ask you and me to die to self and to pick up our cross every day and keep following him. He is going to ask us, no, no, he he is going to command us, and he has, to cease from sin. He's going to command us to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. He commands us to do the impossible, not because we can do it, but because nothing is impossible with God. My church family, do you believe that? Do I believe this? Does it govern not only my decisions, but also begin to govern my emotions as well? If we believe this, if we truly believe this, then when God speaks to us through his word, we too will be able to say, I am your servant, Lord. Your will be done in my life according to your word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we just marvel at your wisdom, at the wisdom of Scripture. And not only at the wisdom, but the power of God as we reread and ponder here and meditate this morning on, on the, the miraculous news given to Mary and all that unfolded in the 33 years following. Lord, we stand in awe of you because you are able but you are not only able, you are good in the perfect, holy, complete sense. And it is because you are able and you are good when you speak by your grace, we can trust and follow. Thank you, Lord, for paving the way for us to follow you through the life and death and resurrection of your own son and now the grace and the wisdom and the work of your own spirit who dwells within us. Lord, help us to be more like Mary. 
who had tapped into the grace of God, the truth of God, that enabled her to simply walk righteously and blamelessly before you. Not that we are perfect, but that our conscience is clear with you, Lord. When we sin, we repent and we purpose to do right. When we sin again, we are quick to confess and repent and do what is right. Lord, help us to be a people who are growing in the power of God. What a mission you had for Mary. What a mission you have for us. Help us to be a people, Lord, who can readily say, we're here to serve you. Your will be done in our life according to your word. And all God's people said, amen. amen.